Want to better your relationships, get confident asking for what you really want, and have more satisfying sex? Welcome to Intimate Interactions, a collection of juicy negotiations, informative explanations, sultry debriefings, and much more. Get early access and other goodies at patreon.com slash victorsalmon. Welcome to episode two of Introduction to Scripts on Intimate Interactions. We share many intimate interactions with each other. Cuddling, deep conversation, consolation, celebration, shared activities, various sex acts, living together, combining finances, emotional vulnerability, sharing family functions, holidays, and many more. You get the idea. When we give relationships a label, we're usually invoking a set of rules, if not scripts. If I said fuck buddies, or friends with benefits, or boyfriends, or fiancé, or husband, you'd probably have a range of accepted and prohibited behaviors associated with each. Some detest these labels, viewing them as restrictive boxes inhibiting more authentic relationships. Yet labels can be useful for expectation setting and time saving. They work for some of us. Some even use many overlapping labels instead to invite questions so they can clarify. When the boxes that hold these pre-selected sets of rules and interactions don't suit you, why not create your own box? Why not select your own rules and interactions? Enter relationship anarchy. It's not the absence of rules, but rather only following the rules, values, or principles that one has personally participated in creating, at least in my opinion as a practicing relationship anarch. It is intentional and explicit creation of those rules, values, or principles. Like anything, it requires informed consent by all of those in the relationship. Disclaimer. I apologize in advance if something I say discriminates against some folks. I'm open to being called in. Chances are six months from now I'll look back aghast and see something horrifically problematic I'm not proud of. I'm certainly not perfect, but I'm trying to be mindful of the voices I choose to lift up and the perspectives that I encourage. Along that line, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on unceded traditional Coast Salish territory, specifically that of the Musqueam Nation. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. My guest today is Oz Riley, who uses they-them pronouns, who is a white, trans, non-binary, genderqueer, genderfuck of a human. That is the exact quote, yes? Yes, that's right. Awesome. Great. So that leads me to my first question, Um, quite naturally, actually. We were on the topic of scripts, and that's what we'll be talking about mostly today. I'm really curious to talk about the distinction between cis and trans, because I also am very much gender non-binary, at very least in my perspective on gender, if not in my actual gender expression, because I like to wear makeup from time to time and do this and that. But again, it tends to be this I don't want to say shallow foray into non-binary gender expression, but it definitely isn't the cishet typical what I'm told a manly man should be. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I hear the word binary, that prefix bi meaning two, uh, coming to this idea of there are only ever two options. Right. And I think particularly in the context of our North American society in this present day, um, people feel much more comfortable in this idea of a binary or like, Mm -hmm. but that's, I think the comfort is actually more in the idea of it rather than the practice of it, which is really interesting. I completely agree. That's a really great observation. Yeah. So non-binary being like not fitting one of those two boxes, not fitting one of those two options. Um, And so uh, if we're thinking about a binary world, uh, cisgender would be the opposite of transgender. So Mm -hmm. that word cis means to align with. It's a chemistry term and uh, it's like cis bonds align. So that's where that word comes from. 
Um, and so basically, if your gender matches the sex that you're assigned at birth, you would be cisgender. Uh, and then in a binary world, transgender would be the opposite of that. So trans mm -hmm. meaning to change or to move across. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, we don't actually live in a binary world. So while those are two valid options, there totally. are a bajillion other options that can also exist. Right. So, I'm, and I asked you that question in part because I like my podcasts to be accessible to anyone to be able to pick up. So if I, if you catch me saying things that are really jargony, feel free to be like, and just to go into that in more detail or like <laughs> ask me to go into it in more detail or whatever. For sure. Um, so my, my question was, I noticed that you describe yourself as trans and non-binary. Yeah. And I'm curious how those identities work for you independently of each other. I mean, I, I guess the first word I ever would have used for myself uh, with relationship to gender when I started unpacking it was genderqueer. Uh, and it was just understanding that my gender was queer. It was strange. It was different. It didn't fit into this idea of what society told me uh, as someone who was assigned female at birth, mm -hmm. um, what I should be or who I should be and how I should act and the things I should like. And um, there was a freedom to finding the word genderqueer. Um, and the more I stepped into that and kind of let it uh, let myself discover what that meant for me, um, the more I questioned, like, how I existed in my body and, like, was able to acknowledge the discomforts that I felt. Um, and so it wasn't until later um, when I finally started my medical transition that uh, I, I started using the word trans or transgender. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that's not the case for everyone. I know that there's a lot of trans people out there who don't choose medical transition and will still use that word. So, mm -hmm. like, words can have different meanings to different people. This is just how I've chosen to differentiate them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like, I'll use trans, and, like, as the shortened version of many different things sure. uh, that references just, like, how I exist in my body and how my body takes up space in the world. Yeah, that that's an excellent answer. So... I suppose, in a sense, trans almost functions like a marker that other people will understand rather than a marker that's necessarily completely encompassing of your relationship with gender. Yeah, definitely. I think that um, for a lot of folks, it's uh, this trans means that, oh, there has been a change. Right. Um, and what, once again, while that may be true for some people and untrue for others, that's just one way that like I have been able to navigate my inner self. Sure. And speaking of inner self and the distinction between one's like inner gender identity and one's gender presentation or expression for the outside world. Yeah. So someone might identify as trans simply because they feel like their identity, it does not line up with the sex they were assigned at birth. Yeah. Rather than there's been a medical change or something physical. Yes. Cool. Awesome. So if someone's not cis exactly, are they necessarily trans or might they identify instead as <laughs> some form of non-binary queer and just throw the whole cis and trans binary out with the bathwater. Yeah, once again, it's coming back to this idea of we find, we seem to find comfort in the idea of this binary, but um, it actually doesn't reflect a lot of our lived experiences. Right. Um, my experience with this is like, the more I try and cling to a binary idea, the less content I am. Um, so I think getting away from this idea of uh, you're cis or you're trans, like, like those are two very valid options at opposing ends of this sure. this universe. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot more than that in between those two. In between, around, outside of sure. all of the above. Sure. Yeah. I like that. I like the around and outside of for people who genuinely are like, I'm a human that loathes those labels <laughs> and I choose to identify as this thing outside of that or just I choose to identify as me because ultimately I think that's what we're slowly 
um, on course towards is a discussion on relationship anarchy and our relationship with labels and how labels sometimes just don't serve people. Yeah, and it's interesting because like I have a very mixed, uh, very mixed feelings about labels in general. Like in mm-hmm. one sense, like we need them, and I have this like debate within myself and with like my communities all the time. Um, this idea of like, well, why are there so many words? Why are there so many labels? Mm-hmm. Like, can't we all just be people? That that piece that you just said, and it's sure. like, well, yes, and also no. Like, we we need these labels at least right now because labels are how we find a sense of self um it's Mm -hmm. how we find community it's how we find a sense of belonging um words are the things that allow us to find connection and so as much as they can create connection they can also create disconnection Mm -hmm. um and so having these words helps us uh kind of and and this is why i use more than just trans or more than just non-binary is because i'm both of those things and more Mm -hmm. and so at these words that I have, um, I, I liken it to kind of like the color wheel. So if you think about non-binary and genderqueer, very similar things potentially. Um, the color blue, there's blue, there's dark blue, there's navy blue, there's like all Powder these different blue. shades. Yeah, and and some of them might be very similar, but there are subtle differences and there are nuances. And so when I think about words like genderqueer, genderfluid, mm-hmm. um, it's those subtle nuances and people find comfort in those nuances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. And the people who are completely unfamiliar with them and, and are, are very afraid of change sometimes find great discomfort in there being all of these options for people and their inability to comprehend or understand how this fits into their rigid view of the world. And when it comes down to it, like you don't necessarily need to know someone's gender identity totally. to know how to like treat them with respect yeah they are humans they are humans like the thing that you need to know is not necessarily someone's gender identity but their pronouns so how to refer to them yeah and then like as you build relationships then like these things start to make sense in different ways because you can just like hopefully see a person for who they are Mm -hmm. i hope so too and i think that's a very interesting use of language because a lot of people, even in very mainstream circles who still subscribe to really rigid binaries, still use the word they as a non-gendered pronoun. And, and they use that, use that pronoun not just for plural situations as I'm using it, but for individuals like, oh, my friend's coming over. Oh, do you know what time they're getting here? Or, hey, someone left their water bottle here. I wonder if they'll come back to get it. So specifically when we don't know what someone's gender is. Yes. Yeah. And it's like already a mainstream practice in English. So it's ironic that what I I don't I don't necessarily want to speak for you and say what we're asking for. But (laughs) but what I think a lot of people are asking for in in use of more gender neutral language, it, it already exists in English. There's already a model for it. And all the complaints I hear around even using them. Are, are really just rooted in, in, I think, fear of change, personally. Yeah, I think so as well. Yeah, well, hopefully that does change. <laughs> yeah. So speaking more about labels, I, I really liked what you were saying around labels are something we use to pursue connection, and that, that is one of the like hallmarks of my podcast, is talking about intimacy and connection and relationships, so yeah. it's great that you use those words. I also find that they're really involved in expectation setting. Oh, yeah, We totally. use labels as like shorthand expectation setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I think about like labels and re- like in relationship to relationships, I think that's where there is so much, uh, how, like how how do I even say it? Like what you just said about expectation, like words have expectation, and where I've come into the most amount of challenges is like when two people will use the same word, but it'll have different meanings. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, so like, yes. I remember I was seeing someone and we didn't realize it until like after the fact, but we both had very different um, like understandings of what the extent of the word making out meant. Oh, so wow. So I would be like, oh, I want to go make out with this person. And like what that meant to me meant something very different to the person I was seeing. Right. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was just like, you've seen me make out with this person before. Like we ended up having right. to clarify that when I used that terminology, this person imagined me lying out in a bed, like lying horizontally in a bed with like like full on tongues and like heavy petting. And like that's that's what they imagined I making out was. I love the phrase heavy petting. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like for me it was just like oh no like i'm gonna like kiss this person there's probably gonna be some tongue there might sure. be some groping sure. like but but not horizontal not horizontal and not heavy petting <laughs> um but it was heavy just like petting. that's this fantastic <laughs> really interesting moment of realization and so when i think about like titles for relationships and the ways in which relationships can exist and labels um there's so much clarification that needs to go into that because oftentimes there's these expectations that go along with, um, and how do we unpack those expectations in ways that honor that we're all coming from things uh, like from a different perspective. We're coming from our own lived experiences, our own lived perspectives. And, um, I think it also means coming back to this, like hopefully trying to trust that, everyone is coming with their best intentions and while mm -hmm. intentions and impact are both, both have meaning um, that we have to learn to find a balance between those two things, especially when negotiating relationship intentions and interests in uh, intention and impact intention and impact. Thank you. Yeah. Now, when you say impact, could you unpack that a little? Um, sure. So I, an example, like be like, I, have the intention of like throwing this great surprise party for you. You okay. don't know about this surprise party. I see. Uh, you actually hate surprise parties, but I don't know this. So I'm coming at things with like the best of intentions and right. I'm trying to do something that like, I, I hope that you'll enjoy. Right. And then you get, you find out that there's a surprise party and you all of a sudden have horrible anxiety. And, oh, no. and so the impact is that like this thing that I thought sure. was a, a positive thing I was going to do for you ended up having these like negative implications. And so you have the chance to respond and like, depending on where you're at, you might respond being like, I'm anxious. I can't do this. I can't be here. Or like, maybe you'll push through it and you'll talk to me later or, right. or maybe you'll get really upset with me because you're like, I hate surprise parties. How could you have thrown this for me? So there's right. all these different, um, the impact of my make, making a choice to like throw the surprise party for you is that you are feeling anxious and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. My intention was to bring you joy. Right. So how you respond to my intention and how I respond to your impact is crucial. Yeah, that's very interesting because I think you've just described um, a cycle of negativity I've certainly fallen into in relationships where a person has the best of intention, does something, it has a really negative impact. The person expressing that they've had a negative impact has the best of intention, but that expression has its own negative impact in the first person and so on and so on ad nauseum. Yeah. And I think like it's, I've totally found myself in the trap before where uh, someone will be like, Hey, you did this thing and it really hurt me. And then like, my first reaction has been to become defensive mm -hmm. and to be like, well, I was just trying to do this nice thing for you. Like, why are you so upset? And so it's like coming, I think it's learning these skills that like, I certainly wasn't taught as a young person where 
you actually just have to listen. And the person, like, you telling me that I've impacted you negatively isn't you telling me that I'm a horrible person. And I think right. that when we receive feedback sometimes around the impact, when our intentions are positive, means that we become defensive because we're thinking, like, it's being received as a critique of our our good intentions. And that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, one of the things that I've been learning or trying to learn and embody is when someone offers me that feedback around what the impact was, is appreciating that as like a, you're offering this to me because you want me to know you better. You're offering this to me as a way that I can grow and actually show up for you, hopefully in the future in ways that are, um, going to be more supportive or conducive. So like, maybe you didn't want that surprise party. Maybe you wanted to have like a quiet night with like a couple of friends and, sure. and that would have been more, uh, and you would have wanted some like framing for that so you could emotionally prepare for it. And so like when we can have those compassionate dialogues where mm-hmm. you're telling me the impact and I'm not becoming defensive, it means that we can kind of move beyond that. And I think if we draw this all the way back to labels yes. and like the, the words we use for our, our relationships or our, to either ourselves or others, it's like, we're both going to come to these words with different ideas, maybe similar potentially, but also different. Um, and so as we navigate this complicated world of language and words and meaning, how do we hold the best of attention between us and also hear the impact and how do we move forward in a good way? Yeah. Wow. And holding, holding the space to hear the impact is something I feel a lot of people struggle with. There's a lot of defensiveness. There's a lot of resistance around hearing that we've made a negative impact in someone's life. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we all want to be good, quote, sure. good people. Like, yeah. what, what does that mean at the end of the day? It's like, it good means, is still it means a part there's of a lot binary. of shame, yeah. a lot of shame around not being good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And shame typically doesn't feel like a good thing unless you're, you know, unless maybe that's a part of like a kink that you're into, which I know that that is like real for a lot of people. Absolutely. So there are definitely people that I know that are very into shame, play, degradation, humiliation, et cetera. And hmm. a lot of people see it and think it's abuse um, because they, they don't understand the mindset. And I always bring that back to consent. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the, the typical example that I use that often has the most potent impact on people in communicating what I'm trying to say when I hear that all BDSM is abuse is making the distinction between sex that's consensual and non-consensual genital acts. Some people refuse to call it non-consensual sex. And I'm getting closer and closer to being one of those people that just mm. calls it rape as different from sex. Hmm. as opposed to calling it non-consensual sex because some people like reserving the term sex just for consensual acts. Interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm still on the fence about it, but I'm leaning more and more that direction. (coughs) So I often make the point that something that can be so intimate and so wonderful and so beautiful can be so harrowing, eviscerating, awful, just there aren't enough bad words to describe what that sensation... I, I should say coming from an inauthentic place. I've been sexually assaulted. I've never been raped. Um, but what that sensation would be like in the collection of emotions. I've had partners that have been, even partners that have been while I've been with them, which is when you think about it, just such a, ugh, getting into yucky territory emotionally for me. But our society is messed up and we have a lot of these really bad things that happen way too often. Yeah. And I think like coming back to this idea of scripts, um, mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why many of us are so messed up is because these scripts don't actually work for us. Yes. These scripts are put out and we're all supposed to follow them. And Mm -hmm. I think we're in this definite um, 
like awakening of trying to, like, I think many people are realizing, uh, particularly folks who have traditionally held a lot of power and privilege sure. are starting to realize that maybe like this isn't working for me. Um, and then when we think about that in like a space where folks are coming from more marginalized perspectives, um, like a lot of these scripts haven't worked for them ever. Right. And or us, depending on like where I situate myself on that spectrum totally. of things and that spectrum of experience. Um, and so when we're trying to rewrite or write new scripts, um, I think there's often a lot of trial and error and it's, it's going to be messy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is like ongoing hurt or mm-hmm. challenges that come alongside writing new scripts. But I also think that following the scripts that we've had this whole time um, is beyond where we're at. Like we need to move beyond just continuing to exist with this, within the scripts that were written for a, a dominant majority of few. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And that's probably part of the selection process for how I, how I choose my guests. I mean, it's not, but sometimes I wonder subconsciously, I'm like, do I pick my guests? Because subconsciously I think that we agree on a lot of things. Um, and, and, that, <laughs> and it's something I think every, every person who has any degree of privilege in exposure or not that I have any, but, <laughs> but any degree of, of an audience should be asking that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, getting back to what I was saying earlier, just to wrap it up in a way that hopefully is a little clearer, <laughs> was the distinction that consent is what makes things really positive or not, that yes. it has less to do with the act and more to do with the social context. Mm-hmm. That's certainly true for sex. I think it's also true for BDSM as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of people look at BDSM and because it's not in the conventional script to ever for example, strike someone, even if you're striking that person across the ass, for example, which is which is kind of in, in the script if it's open-handed, in a naughty sort of, you're not supposed to do that, but you can get away with it in this flirty kind mm-hmm. of, ooh, I'm breaking all the rules kind of way. Um, it's also used in a very objectifying way. Um, cis men do that with cis women, and it's considered very objectifying. Yeah. At least that's how it's presented in the media or how I've internalized it from that. For sure. But, sorry, the TLDR, <laughs> which, I, which I just don't seem to be able to get to, is, is yeah, this distinction that if if we can understand that physical violence is bad and that non-consensual sex, for lack of a better term, is bad, then we can understand that what makes that awfulness good is consent, that that two consenting informed individuals could have an interaction that's intimate, that does things that are off script, and it's good for them, even if it wouldn't be good for you. Mm -hmm. And that we don't need to look at other people that are off script doing whatever they're doing, be it kinky sex or not, or something else altogether, and just not judge them for that. Like, yeah. take away the shame and the judgment that's so normative, that's pushing people towards these scripts, mm-hmm. and just let them exist off script, doing their own thing, provided it's consensual, and that they report that that is what they want to be doing. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the challenges is, like, this um, also scarcity mentality, how we totally. exist in... Um, and And when we think about enthusiastic consent versus, like... Mm, so-so consent versus like totally. non-consensual. Yeah. Um, it's still on a spectrum. Absolutely. Um, and, and so how do we, uh, how do we navigate a world that tells us that our experiences, um, like that we are going to experience scarcity, uh, that totally within scarcity, that means that you need to like take every single opportunity that you can get because you don't know when the next one is going to be. Um, and, when we think about relationships, um, it's, it's, I think, important to try and come back to um, 
like this isn't going to be the only chance and uh and and so fighting that brain chemistry that like those pre programmed scripts that have like been taught to us forever around like oh this is limited this is scarce like you like if you don't get this now you're not going to get your needs met and oh um, totally how do you like how do we deprogram ourselves from that absolutely that's a very good question how do we deprogram ourselves from that um, that it's okay. We'll get. We'll get. No, that's not. It's not a legitimate question. Like, I don't have the answer. <laughs> I'm working on it, but I think we all are, and that's yeah. part of the reason why I made the first topic for the podcast scripts, and then the second topic for the second session is going to be how do we move past the scripts? But you'll have more time to think about it and offer some hopefully helpful suggestions, Great. as opposed to me just like bus Oz under bus. Thanks. No Appreciate problem. It. Um, so, but speaking of the scripts that we do have, um, let's get back to some questions. So what is, what does dating look like for you? How do you, how, how have you been told that dating should look for you and, and how are you pursuing dating? Oh my gosh. This is like an ongoing question I have in my life. Um, as someone (laughs) who like, I literally over the last six months took a complete hiatus from dating. Oh wow. Um, for the first time since I started dating, I, uh, basically was like, no, I think I need to take some time to like figure out how to like both be with myself. But also, um, I think one of the challenges I was coming up against, um, was I had a few experiences of being told um, by a partner that I did poly badly, that I oh. w- wasn't doing it right, that I was doing it badly. And if I take a step back even further, when I think about like what it means to be in a monogamous relationship totally. um, and what society tells me that should look like and, um, and, and how those scripts played out in my early dating life. But like monogamy is something that never fully made sense to me because, and as I've like recently had like conversations about monogamy doesn't just mean sexual monogamy. It can mean emotional monogamy. It can mean uh, financial monogamy. There's like so many different areas, but oftentimes when we think about monogamy, I think it's directly linked to sexual, uh, sexual conduct and sexual relationship. Um, Right. When people use the term monogamy colloquially, they're usually referring to sexual monogamy, not social monogamy. Exactly. But then you might still be in a relationship that's sexually monogamous. And if someone is having feelings towards someone else, regardless of whether or not they're acting on them. Right. Someone might be like, you're emotionally cheating on me. That is that is such thought policing. But yes, I have heard the term emotional affair before where someone starts spending a lot of focused attention with, say, a friend um, of the same sex or of a different sex doesn't really matter. Yeah. But there's a lot of focused attention that's coming away from the time that they have in their intimate relationship with their domestic partner, say. Mm-hmm. These labels get really complicated for me because I te- I've already like abstracted a relationship and sort of taken it apart into various components. So I think of relationships as intimate interactions in general, mm-hmm. and then I think of like domestic partnerships or sexual partnerships or social, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes there's overlap, and sometimes yeah. there's separation. Totally. And I think that's for me like over the last decade that I've been more consciously, I guess like oh god, I'm 30 now, so like I started dating when I was maybe 13. Uh, so I've got That's kind of adorable. 17 years of dating under my belt and probably from like my very first boyfriend, uh, slash, and then like following that relationship, my very first closeted girlfriend, um, like mm-hmm. those relationships were never f- like fully monogamous. 
They sure. were always like monogamish. Like there would be parties. We'd make out with our friends. It was fine. Um, and so like from very early on, both like queerness and relationships for me, like being a queer person um, and knowing, like feeling so confident in my queerness of like knowing that like, no, I'm just, I'm just not straight. Like that's just not who I am. Um, I was already fitting outside of the idea of like this script mm -hmm. um, of like what a traditional relationship is supposed to look like. Cause I was just queer and therefore all of my relationships were inherently queer, different, different strange. Um, and almost off script, uh, almost off script. Like, it's like you don't have a map. You don't have the same map of quote unquote boy meets girl <laughs> and then, and then stage two and then step three profit. Yeah. Like you don't have that, that linear progression of, of how relationships should go because you're already in a space where people tell you, you shouldn't exist. Exactly. And so how all of my relationships kind of unfolded were just like these explorations of intimacy. Um, and I have been in monogamous relationships. I've been in non-monogamous relationships. And through all of this, it's been like, how do I, how do I find the language or the labels or the words that make sense to describe what it is that I'm experiencing? And that is something that I have consistently struggled with um, because I don't know that the words that make sense to me have existed. <laughs> um, and so coming back to this idea of more recently um, in the last few years being told, oh, you're bad at poly, like... I, oh. I remember this like one situation early on in this relationship. And so like, this is going back like, about four or five years ago now. Sure. Um, I had been, I had two long distance partners and that like I was actively dating. And then um, I didn't like, and then I had like my ambiguous relationships of sorts outside sure. of that. And when this person came into my life, um, I had been unpacking in therapy. Like, am I monogamous? Am I non-monogamous? Because... I'm like, I'm fucked up and I'm traumatized and like, um, and because I have trust issues because people have cheated on me, like all these things, I was like mm -hmm. trying to figure out like, why am I non-monogamous? Like, is it, is it fear? Is it distrust? Is it, um, who knows? And, uh, and I was like, well, maybe I am monogamous. Maybe I just like haven't taken the time to try and trust somebody. Mm -hmm. Maybe I, maybe I need to take that risk and, and see. And so when this other person came into my life, I ended up um, at, like closing my two long distance partnerships mm -hmm. um, and uh, like actively informing like myself and this other person kind of sat down and we'd been like dating and we were like, yeah, like, um, let's explore this monogamy thing. And both of us were coming from, mm -hmm. um, to my understanding at the time, non-monogamous backgrounds. And mm -hmm. um, so we decided to explore that together. And very quickly, I realized that even though I had ended the sexual intimacy component right. of my relationships with my two long distance partners, um, I... Still friends, still... I still had deep emotional intimacy mm -hmm, connections with mm -hmm. them, deep friendships with them. I still wanted to spend time with them. Mm -hmm. um, I still wanted to make time for them. And so very early into this monogamous dating situation, I started feeling that like constriction of like a box that didn't fit. Right. Um, and like, and then kind of trying to backtrack from that was really challenging, I think. Um, and, and then I remember this one trip that we were taking together, we were sitting on a ferry and, 
um, I had just received word that one of my long distance ambiguous humans, not, not one of my previous partners, but just someone who, uh, I didn't have a word for what I would call that person, um, was going to come visit. And it was the first time that we were going to be seeing each other in, I don't know, six months to a year, maybe. Um, and I had never told my then monogamous partner Mm -hmm. (laughs) about this person. And it wasn't from, excuse me, it wasn't from like trying to hide something. And this is where I come back to like intention versus impact, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't that I was trying to hide this relationship. It wasn't that um, I was like being infidelous. It was literally just that the relationship that I had built with this other person who didn't live in the same city as me Mm -hmm. was such that every time that we had connected and, and, and spent time together, it was always a renegotiation of where we were at based on where we're at. So it's like we would go months without seeing each other or speaking. And then we would be like, Hey, let's, let's connect. Like just out of the blue, one of us would reach out to the other. We would find time and space. We'd get together. And, um, our relationship was never contingent on our sexual intimacy or our, like, um, this idea of what a relationship quote should look like. Mm -hmm. Um, it was so fluid and it is, it's one of the relationships that I still have in my life. It is so fluid and malleable and, um, I love relationships like that. <laughs> oh my, and, and it's just, it's really about like, and, and so when I think about my best self, it's like the best self that I have shows up in that kind of relationship. Yes. So I, I want to, I, I love what you said I'm about relationships. so much. Yeah. No, no, it's, okay. it's okay. You, you, you do you. I'm, <laughs> I'm interested in your perspective and I'm, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about scripts and yeah. all of the periphery around that. Mm-hmm. Shoot. Where was I going to Right. I, I want to quickly race over a couple of points that you brought up that I sure. had comments for, but I was too enthralled by what you were saying. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so first the notion that someone can be bad at. Mm-hmm. a type of relationship like telling someone they're bad at monogamy or bad at poly it hurts my heart not just because of how harshly those criticisms can affect us they don't have a call to action there isn't a request to to act differently mm-hmm. it's just a put down yeah it just speaks to self-esteem and i've been having a lot of conversations around what is abuse and and how do we stop using the word abuse to describe everything under the sun that we don't like? Mm-hmm. And one of the definitions that came up from a very, you know, academic and intellectual friend of mine was it's simplest to define abuse as things that consistently undermine self-esteem. I may be mm. butchering, I may be oh. butchering her. Oof, that like, that hits me hard in my heart place. <laughs> Um, and, and I'm saying this as a person who quite guiltily has said that one of my former partners was bad at polyamory. And when I realized how bad that thing was to say, at least bad in the sense that how hurtful mm, that thing was to say, I realized I never wanted to say that again to anyone ever. Mm. And I felt like what I had done was caused harm where I was trying to express hurt. And that's so interesting to me because I can remember so clearly that that moment on the boat where I was like, Hey, so-and-so is coming to visit. I know I haven't talked to you much about them before. I I haven't heard from them in like six months or whatever. And I'm really excited. And I like then tried to express the kind of relationship that I had with this person. And I didn't have the words. Yeah. And so then my partner at the time in this monogamous relationship was like, well, like why did you keep this from me and there was like a lot of like uh, like 
it's like I had, it was being put on me that I had done this intentionally to hurt this person or that I was lying or somehow cheating. Um, so it was focused on your intentions rather than being focused on a perceived threat to relationship, fear of loss or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And also it wasn't, and it was like the perception of, it was like, it wasn't even my intention. It was like these intentions were being put on me and that was hurtful. Yeah. And like, well, because it's kind of like gaslighting. Like, nobody can tell you what your intentions are. They can tell you that your actions were poor. They can tell you that their actions impacted them really badly. Yeah, or it's like, hey, I feel kind of hurt that you sure. kept this relationship from me. And then I have the opportunity to be like, I'm it wasn't, really sorry. Sure. I didn't intentionally keep this from you. Literally, how I connect with this person is very sporadically and in moments. And sure. um, beca- like, because our... And so for me, the justification became, like, in as I look back on this was like my relationship with this person who was coming mm-hmm. to visit was never contingent on taking something away from whatever I had. And we had navigated situations like this in the past where I'd gone mm-hmm. to visit them and like they were in partnership. And so when I got there, they'd be like, Oh, actually I'm in this partnership right now. I'd be like, cool. I can't wait to meet this person that you're seeing and totally. that you're so excited about. How do, how should we, how should we relate in, in this during moment, this like during visit, this time period, during this yeah. time together? Yeah. Are we still okay to like, have cuddling intimacy are we still okay to have kissing intimacy like what what works for us in this moment how can i be respectful of you and your relationship where you're at and i had no way of being able to like express express that that to this person and so like moments like that throughout our long-term relationship and we if like very shortly after that like not um shifted from monogamy to theoretical non-monogamy and i say theoretical non-monogamy because i think once you start something in a monogamous relationship, it can be very challenging yeah. to actually uncouple I've, from that and the expectations that come uh, yes. alongside that. I've, I've known couples that have made it work, but oh, typically... So impressed. Please tell me more. Right? Um, I've, known, I've known married monogamous couples that have made it work. Hmm. Um, so it is possible. However, I think what... If I had to guess at what all of them have in common, I would guess that it's patience compassion and a a genuine I I think all of them are personally responsible as well as supportive Mm -hmm. and I think being able to make that distinction is really hard to be able to say I'm feeling jealous right now oh that relates to I'm feeling really insecure that I'm going to lose this person or I'm I'm really afraid of change right now Mm -hmm. I'm terrified that I said yes to do this thing and I want to do the thing. And even though I really want to do the thing, I'm really scared that this is going to mean bad things for me. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't know what those bad things are, it's just a generalized sense of fear and being able to go to your partner and say, Hey, (coughs) I'm still 100% on board with this. And I am having the following emotions. So just be advised. Mm -hmm. I'm experiencing all these negative emotions and their partner, unlike what I did in my first poly relationship, (laughs) which was be unsupportive and detached, which I feel awful about but it is what it is right and i wouldn't be where i am today if i hadn't had the experiences i've had that have led me to it's coming back to that idea of we are writing our own scripts we are writing scripts that don't exist and therefore we are going to fuck it up yeah we are going to do shit that like is not in alignment with our best selves or with like how we want to or how we should be taking care of each other yeah and i do like leaving people better than i found them and i'm getting better at being that person every day i like to think anyway (laughs) so right what was i speaking about right so having the the ability to be supportive so when someone comes to you and says blah i'm having all these really negative emotions (laughs) 
and and there's this distinction between this person is assigning me the emotional labor of dealing with their negative emotions versus this person is communicating with me necessary information. I need to know that they're in this negative place just as like a heads up. I'm dealing with this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just that communication can be really beneficial. But then in addition to that, I think their partners have always come and sat down at the table. Like they've always come to the table when their partner has been in that space and they've offered them necessary emotional support. Now, maybe I have an idealized view of these people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure that hasn't always been the case for them. And I'm sure they fucked up too. But yeah, I think the more that we hear about um, I don't want to even necessarily call these people role models, but the more we hear about people that, that have successfully been able to be more authentic, to be able to do more of what they want and get more of what they want out of life while still being respectful and kind to people. Yeah. I think the more we see that, the more we see like, oh, it's possible. And what scripts are they using? Because I want some of that script action. Like, <laughs> I, I want to know how they did it. It was like the, the second that you brought it up, like, tell me more about these humans. It's like, I, I want to know how they did it. Yeah, for sure. It's, and I think like that's something that I, I hope to see more of. Um, earlier, you mentioned like media mm-hmm. and I recognize that like I am a product of my upbringing and like I try oh. and challenge so many things every single day. Um, and I am still beholden in so many ways to like these dominant narratives. And it's when I, when I find myself falling back into those dominant narratives or like want the wanting of those dominant narratives because they're so prevalent because they just take up so much space and um as someone who's like pretty mask presenting for the most part um and like what it means for the male part of my identity and I say part because like I don't identify fully as male but um like the part of me who grew up with those internalized understandings of what does it mean to uh in a male female-esque relationship be the male part uh, person who is attracted to a female person and like how do I navigate that and how do I pursue that and like non-consent is so deeply embedded in in many of the dominant narratives oh yes and masculine identities like pursuing and uh yeah just even being the pursuer of sex even if it's not non-consent as such in the way that most like people listening to this podcast might think of Mm non-consent just the notion that it is your responsibility all of a sudden to initiate it's your responsibility all of a sudden to pursue and if someone's like is coy what i'm saying in quote unquote coy coy or or playing hard to get or any of those non-consenty scripts and how do you know if that person is actively unpacking that script or playing that script and like like as someone who sports facial hair from time to time, I'm like, sure. it's like you go out into the world and you're like, okay, hey, like, how do I interact? How do I interact with this person in an ethical way that like challenges these scripts, but also like coming back to this idea of scarcity, if I don't pursue someone, will someone actually pursue me or will someone right. actually feel confident and comfortable telling me that they have an interest in me? Um, and do you feel like any of that in, in any way is informed by your pursuit perhaps of femme individuals before you transitioned because i know there's like an invisibility issue of if you have no script of who's supposed to initiate and both parties do not normally initiate how is that not like a wallflower in high school (laughs) dance where everyone goes home unsatisfied exactly and so like i think there was like more freedom in many ways before i started my physical transition uh to like pursue the types of relationships i wanted to pursue um when it came to being attracted to femme or feminine presenting people. Um, And it's been interesting, like with the transition aspect, 
um, and still being attracted to men or male presenting folks, it's like, okay, wait, no, like as a person who's being perceived as a boy or a man, like how, how do I, how do I engage in this style of relationship? And there's just like so many questions. Um, but I think the areas where I struggle mostly with, uh, being like in, in fully enthusiastic consent is when it comes back to that, I'm being perceived as this person who is, has facial hair, therefore must be male. Um, and this person I'm attracted to is clearly female or femme. And, uh, how do I navigate that respectfully? Mm -hmm. Um, when like, there's still those, those scripts that like are, are telling me things and how do I, how do I challenge that? How do I like, Mm -hmm. and there are different kinds of listening too. Sure. So many different kinds of listening. I I might have mastered one at most. <laughs> if if mastered yeah. is ever even. Yeah. And when I say one, it's not the active kind. <laughs> and so for for me this the next part in in this whole piece around scripts is like around listening. Um and as someone who was socialized and raised female and uh grew up as kind of like the main caregiver to both my younger brother and my mother in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um there was a different kind of listening that I had to do. It was like the listening for the underlying needs rather than the words that were being spoken. Uh. So I grew up socialized to seek out like, what is it that I, how can I see what you're struggling with? Like maybe on the surface you're struggling with something and then uh, delve deep and be like, and pre um, like, how do I, uh, how do I know what your needs are without you telling me what your needs are essentially. Right. right. And, uh, in many ways I became very good at that and that, and, uh, it's only been within the last several years that I've had to stop myself and unpack and be like, Whoa, there's a lot of saviorism going on here. And like, that is actually really unhealthy. And it creates this like non-sustainable, yeah. uh, sense of caretaking in a way that like creates codependency and, and even builds resentment and even builds resentment. And like, be it, but it's like literally my whole life that's like what I did to survive was finding like figuring out what someone's underlying need was and becoming that or providing that that's a very femme type of programming and then there's and so this there's this other part where it's like how do I just listen to the words that you're telling me and trust mm-hmm. that the words you're telling me Are and this is something that I'm I've only really had like presented to me within the last almost two years, like year and a half, two years of this concept of like, what? Someone will tell me something and I should just listen to their words rather than try and figure out what's going on underneath their words. Right. And I, I often refer to it as burning the high school down. <laughs> why, why is that? Because I feel like so much of that socially fence, like socially fencing and being super like cautious about what you choose to voice because not only are you playing the game where you're trying to interpret what someone else is quote unquote really saying, but you're also trying to play the game of interpreting how when you say something, you understand all the connotations of how someone else is going to unpack what you're quote unquote really saying. Mm-hmm. It's like this unnecessarily convoluted um, fear of manipulation, performing manipulation. There's like a lot of really negative social behaviors that I feel were built into high school socializing. Mm, and maybe it yeah. was the time period and <laughs> it was just whatever it was, or maybe it was just my high school. But I, I just consider it like taking all of that baggage and just like pushing all of it into a garbage disposal with force. Yeah. And then just going back to, I will choose to uh, like follow and listen to exactly what a person says word for word. And then when it explodes, 
right? As it, as it and that's so, so often. hard for me is because I think like there's this very fine line of like, um, especially in relationship, any kind of relationship, it's like okay, if I'm listening to the words you're sharing, mm-hmm. but I know there's something else going on underneath there. How do I honor the words you're saying and and as someone who's socialized to do a lot of emotional labor, how do I not yeah. do that emotional labor of bringing those ser- th- things to the surface? But also how do I uh, like trust mm-hmm. and like hold space for um, the coming up of those emotions and, and support those emotions coming up in um, a constructive way. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's something that like we don't, it's not always easy, like, yeah. especially because most of us aren't socialized to actually, understand any style of healthy communication like i am constantly Absolutely. asking the question what is healthy communication and how do we get there especially if people communicate in different ways or have different um just abilities and and anxieties and socializations and uh and the foundation of any relationship whether it be romantic sexual friendship uh, intellectual whatever kind sure. of relationship sure. like is communication but none of us know how to do it Really? Or at the very least, it's, I mean, how many frameworks for communication were you taught in school? No. Like, none. Um, I've been taught a, f- a couple, at least two, since I've left school. And the very first one that I learned, um, which is the compassionate communication, it's also called nonviolent communication, it's Marshall Rosenberg's framework mm-hmm. for communication, yeah. has been, even if I don't use it, because to be honest, most people are not trained in how to use it. So it's actually really hard to use NVC with most people. Mm-hmm. But just having the framework, just being able to perceive my own feelings through the filter that I was taught in nonviolent communication, wow, what a difference it made. It changed how I perceived needs. It changed how I perceived relationships. It changed how I perceived what's exchanged in relationships. It just like, it gave me this really amazing filter. And, And for anyone who's interested, I didn't even learn through a course i literally just picked up marshall rosenberg's book nonviolent communication mm-hmm. read it and then kind of like i don't know sat down and had a cigarette i, I don't know how you <laughs> describe like i was like where have you been all my life and speaking of media because we were talking about media um and dominant cultures in media and how that you know shows off only one narrative in star trek enterprise their denobulan doctor dr flox <laughs> he's non-monogamous he has three wives each of which have three husbands including him <laughs> And I remember watching this episode as, I, I guess I would have been, geez, how old would I have been? Probably like 17, 16, 17. That's so fantastic. I was watching this and I remember being like, oh my God, that sounds absolutely amazing. Like this science fiction just got to a surreal place where I'm like, oh, that just hits me right in the truth. Yeah. I was, um, I recently finished a book and, uh, it's, uh, it's called The Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk. Okay. And it's, uh, this... Sorry, the person's name is Starhawk? Starhawk, yeah. I love that. Uh, Starhawk is one of the, uh, founders of Reclaiming, um, in Witchcraft. Okay. Um, and writes, so this beautiful book that I, like, fell in love with has all these really complex, uh, dynamic relationships, um, and it, it kind of like follows two predominantly two storylines, uh, or two character storylines, um, where, and those, those two characters wait, like start off in different places, but they're both originally from the same place. And, mm-hmm. um, 
the piece around relationship that I love is that in this, uh, it's based the one of the spaces is based in the Bay Area, and it's like in of the course. very in the very near future, in a post-apocalyptic <laughs> world after an uprising, and the Bay has been taken back by these witches, essentially, love it. Um, and everything outside of the Bay Area has been taken over by religious extremists and uh, corporations. <laughs> Why do I feel like that's how everyone living in the Bay Area feels right <laughs> yeah. now? Yeah, and so. Uh, this community that's been constructed, no one ever goes hungry, no one ever goes thirsty, no one ever goes homeless, that everyone has, like, their base needs taken care of, and everyone has, it's coming back to a lot of those principles that I think many Indigenous cultures Mm -hmm. uphold around everyone has a place and a gift and um, traditional values around how how we take care of each other and, like, what does interdependence look like. Mm -hmm. Um, And... And, and, and it's, civic responsibility. And civic responsibility. And, mm-hmm. and that there's this idea that, like, everyone will find something that they that they are resonating to or with. And that mm-hmm. that when that is upheld, how do relationships devol- evolve or develop? Um, and there's just these beautiful scenes where um, characters are just intimate with each other. And they're like, oh, this is my, like this would have been my primary nesting partner and like, but like we all have this like beautiful relationship or like, and, and there's just this beautiful entanglement of consensual relationships where sexual scarcity is not really a thing. Cause it's like, well, so long as everyone is like, whoever is consenting is taking a part, like there's right. And, and like respect around women and and bodies and Mm -hmm. like, is just woven into that culture. And, um, and, and so I think that that's like a shift like this book is like this beautiful shift of how do we write, how do we exist with different scripts of what was the, of what being. was the name of this book? Cause now I'm the fifth sacred thing, the fifth sacred thing. Yeah. So the four sacred things being earth, fire, water, air, the fifth sacred thing being the spirit. You'll have to forgive my ignorance around Wicca. Um, the only, the only things I remember from, I think I'm trying to think of how many witches I've dated. And I think I've only dated, I think I've only dated one that I know of that was no two, two witches in my time. And the only things I remember are as above, so below, mm-hmm. which is beautiful. And the, the Mary meet Mary part and Mary meet again. Yeah. Both of which are things that I find just endearing about Wicca. Sorry, I got kind of derailed no, there. The okay. fifth sacred like, thing. That's yeah. a whole other script that we're like, or like a whole. Sure, talking w- more socially. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're incredible scripts. And when you start getting into the influence of indigenous North American cultures on colonial cultures mm-hmm. and start talking about how social justice has started coming into, um, we will do this in a separate podcast, okay. um, but how social justice is coming into. Um, our ken now. We've gotten to the point where we're starting to become aware of social justice as a thing and that we can start looking at at, at law and society in a non-colonial, non-adversarial way. We can start being influenced by different philosophers than the ones that we've typically always been influenced by. Mm-hmm. And then you start looking at relationships and, and cultures like, say, Burning Man, for example, which, in my opinion, is influenced by those sorts of restorative justice see sort of ideals. Unfortunately, I feel like a lot of the burner culture has, and and I'm very careful about the way that I criticize people on my podcast because I feel like I don't want to use any of my exposure to be disrespectful, but there's a reason that people are talking about consent as the 11th principle of burning man and why that's necessary. Mm -hmm. And that's all I will say about that. Okay. Wow. We have touched on a lot of things 
today and we aren't quite at time but we've had like this really amazing very dense conversation that i'm really really happy with yeah do you have do you have not that i need to wrap up or anything but we have sort of gone through almost everything oh you know there's one thing on my list asking in therapy am i doing an alternative lifestyle because i'm fucked up (laughs) it's like hashtag every alternative person ever yeah um asking am i kinky because i'm fucked up am i non-monogamous because i'm fucked up am i queer because i'm fucked up and when you started talking about even having the conversation or having it suggested to you that maybe like by a therapist no less that maybe you're non-monogamous because you're fucked up like if a therapist suggests that to me, oh my it gosh. screams queer conversion therapy. I, I should clarify that it wasn't the therapist that had okay. suggested this to me. I okay. had come to the therapist. We had been unpacking lots of different things. And finally, I got to this place of like, why is it that I practice non-monogamy? Okay. Um, and so it was coming more from my own personal sense of curiosity of like, why is it that I do relationships in this way? Would I be more satisfied with a different style of relationship? Am I like, have I worked through enough of my pain and my hurt and my trauma to engage in this kind of relationship that I'm told I should want. And I think like when it comes back to dominant narratives, like there's still a very big part of me that like craves like cuz I'm a relationship person. Like I mm-hmm. like the feeling of being in relationship, mutual relationship with anyone is just like so incredibly fulfilling to me or like it it gives me this sense of peace when I um, I am very extroverted in my work, but I'm typically pretty introverted, so I guess I'd be an ambivert. Sure. Um And when I think about the kinds of social situations that I want to be in outside of work, it's usually like intimate one-to-one situations with people where there's like a mutual giving and getting, or like sometimes there's maybe more caretaking on one part, but, and something I've had to learn is like, how do I let myself be taken care of? And like, that's another story (laughs) altogether. Um, And I think that because the dominant narrative so like speaks that like, oh, you're intimate, domestic, living, sexual partner person that that primary relationship is supposed to be the place where you get all of those feelings met and like and and so there's like this part of me that still like longs for that even though i know that when i've had that it's not been the thing that actually works for me um a hundred percent and like but it doesn't stop me from wanting it which is like the most challenging part so like how do i not just hop back on that escalator that is like taking me right up being like okay like how do I appreciate and when I'm able to come back to that how do I just appreciate this for what it is in this moment and how do I um, trust that scarcity won't be a thing that I can get my needs met either through myself or through a number of different ways and um, and asking being key to that Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that we shouldn't shame people for asking like I've been shamed for 100%. asking before, and maybe it's because I asked too consistently, um, and so maybe that's like a thing for me to learn. It's like, oh, how do I recognize that maybe asking is harmful? Sure. Um, but so there's like that question there as well. I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree that asking. I I, I hear what you're saying in what I said, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think my criticism was more leveled at therapists who have an agenda or yeah. therapists who are trying to ask questions from a dominant place. Yeah. Not just as a therapist, but if you have, for example, 
a monogamous therapist that is extremely skeptical that you're happy in a non-monogamous relationship, Mm -hmm. that was more what I was questioning. Or if you have a straight therapist who's extremely questioning of like, yeah, but do you, are you really queer or are you just like those sorts of lines of questioning where you're like, ugh. Yeah. I had this like really hilarious moment last week where I was just like, I'm really queer. (laughs) And as someone who's like identified as queer, like some form of queer, as long Mm -hmm. as I've like, even before I had the language for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just like this hilarious moment of being like, no, I really like sex with this kind of human body and sex with this kind of human body. And like my body will crave different kinds of sex at different times. And sure. And this kind of human body. And I just like <laughs> had this moment where I was like, Oh, I'm really queer. And like, as someone who does a lot of work around queerness, like it just, it, it like hit me. For sure. the first time, like how, or not maybe not for the first time. It was just like this really strange moment of like every single part of me is queer. Yeah, that you don't have non-queer yeah. parts of your identity. Yeah, who you are, and like that is just like such I think a gift, um, because it makes it easier for me to come back to this place of uh, challenging the scripts or when it's pointed out to me. Um, thanks to the emotional labor of other people, which I have to always be really fucking grateful for Mm -hmm. that. Like, Hey, you're doing that thing. I'm able to like sit and reflect and be like, Oh, that's a part of this script that I was taught. Right. And like, I think it is helping me be a better person. It's helping me be less defensive because I have to like offer myself that compassion of like, okay, I can always do better, but also right now I can only exist in within the constraints of like what I've, and you spoke a little bit about this at the beginning is like, I like wouldn't be who I am without the experiences that I've had. Mm -hmm. Are there things I wish I could have done better? Yes. But if I could, like I genuinely believe in myself and the fact that like, if I had known better, I would have done better Mm -hmm. and I will continue to do better because I want to be a part of that change. And I want to be a part of creating scripts that are more authentic for me and more authentic for the people I want to share my life with. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm just waving a flag with Oz <laughs> Riley on it with like an air horn on a float in my mind. Awesome. Yes. It's a great visual. 100%. 100 and 110 times, yes. Awesome. So we talked about that. I love all the things you had to say about authentic selves. That made me happy. Talked about scripts followed. So I guess the only thing we haven't really talked about is how to move past scripts. And I think we should do that in the next session that we record. All right. So maybe we can wrap this one up and then, yeah. Sounds fantastic. Awesome. Oz, thank you so much for being my guest. Yeah, thank you for having me. The background music was Four Way by William Ross Chernoff's Nomads, published through Creative Commons. I hope you've enjoyed Intimate Interactions. Thank you to all of my patrons for their generous support in making this possible. If you'd like to support more content like this and get early access to upcoming shows as well as other goodies, go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon and pledge. Thanks for your time and talk to you soon.